Welcome to Founder Radio. I'm your host, Hugo. In this podcast, you'll hear in-depth conversations with the globe's most exciting company founders. We'll talk about their ideas, their successes, their challenges, and their learnings along the way. At Founder Radio, we celebrate founders. And we believe that innovative founders are critical to deal with the challenges humans face. They are society's explorers and work in uncertainty to expand our practical knowledge each and every day. Building something from scratch requires creativity, intelligence, conviction, and endurance. Get inspired and learn from those that are changing the world. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for listening to Founder Radio. Today, we're talking to Harpreet Singh. He's the co-founder of Package. Package is automating inventory management and optimizing the supply chain. And they reduce costs with up to 10 times while also reducing food waste. He's also out of sight for those listening, but wearing a turban and um, decided to scratch his own itch eight years ago when he couldn't get a right one where he lived. So he's also founder of the Turban Shop based out of Sydney. Was at Uber for seven years in operational roles, so a mix of um, very analytical, heavy lifting and project management. And he holds a bachelor in engineering and business from the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Harpreet, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. And in your own words, we already uh, you know, very briefly alluded to it, but what does Package do? Yeah, I mean, very simply, if you're a restaurant owner, what we do is we put your back of house on autopilot, which means we remove a lot of the manual effort that you spend day to day on just trying to manage simple things like inventory, procurement, and all of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But the thing that we, I guess differentiates us from the competition or from the rest of the players in the market is that we actually can connect you directly with your suppliers in real time so that your suppliers can actually anticipate what the order is that's going to come in before it comes in. Because we know that even if you do everything right as a restaurant owner, sometimes it's out of your hands. You receive the wrong items, there are missing items. And a lot of that is because the suppliers can't anticipate what's going to come in across all of their restaurants. So we just help make that whole process a little bit more seamless and allow everyone to get ahead of it. And, and could you describe what the status quo is for most restaurants and then your vision, like what the world will look like if Package is fully developed? Yeah, I love that question as well, because we spend a lot of time thinking about the vision of like where Package will be in its end state. And we get really excited about that. But then where we are today, obviously, is like solving very immediate problems right now that is that are not so sexy, but is the first step to get there. So mm-hmm. in terms of the status quo today, I think a lot of restaurant owners would be doing, probably Excel is still a very a big part of your operation. And when you have a single location, it, it's generally pretty manageable. You would, at the end of the day, check your stocks. You see what you need to order for the next day based on you know what your safety stock levels are. And then you would put the orders in with your supplier. In terms of the ordering process, it varies depending on the supplier. So the supplier could be having an online web shop where you would put the order in, or you could be sending them a WhatsApp message saying, hey, I need this. Or it could be a phone call or saying, hey, you know, can you give me this for the next day? And you're racing to get all of these orders in before the cutoff time to make sure it comes on time the next day. So that's kind of the status quo today. Where peckish in its end state, the way that the world will look is that restaurant owners should no longer actually have to put in orders at all. And instead, what they would be doing is validating the orders that we recommend. And all the only input they would need to provide is either a photo of their stock or a delivery note or a handwritten inventory note. And that's kind of trying to minimize the manual inputs that they need to put in. And then we handle the rest. So they would then validate the order that we recommend and then can send that to to the supplier. And this can happen well before the cutoff time. So the supplier can actually see that order coming in before it's fully confirmed and they can indicate the availability of those stock levels as Mm -hmm. well. And how does that reduce costs for restaurant owners and also reduce food waste? 
Yeah, so I think one of the, I mean, there's two major costs on a restaurant's P&L. You've got inventory, just cost of goods, and you have your labor costs. Now, when you think about back of house management, it's pretty much hitting both of those cost items. It's taking time for you to actually manage your back of house, but it's also focusing around your biggest one of your biggest P&Ls item, which is purchasing inventory. So restaurant owners spend anywhere between 15 to 20 hours on managing their back of house in a week. And this actually increases exponentially as you get more and more locations. So it gets even more complex as you add locations to your, to your business. So um, the first thing we do is we help you save time in managing that process. So from 20 hours, we leverage our automation and, and machine learning systems to reduce that to two hours per week. And so when you think about that in terms of an employee, that almost gives you back one whole employee in a year, which you could use to help with your front of house work. Um, and then the other piece is the actual cost of goods elements. So there's two areas where we can help you reduce your cost of goods. The first one is just by giving you transparency on what you're actually spending on your inventory. Now, if you're always you know, using Excel, it's very difficult to track waste, wastage, or even just you know, what you're spending on a day-to-day basis. So a lot of the time, you might have a budget which you more or less try to stick to, but you don't really have visibility on the question which is, am I actually selling everything that I'm buying? And so what we do is we help you create visibility over how much you're actually buying from your suppliers and how much are you actually selling in terms of what did you sell to your customers. And there's usually a variance there. And if you're not leveraging a more sort of real-time automated system like this, the variance can be upwards of 5 to 10% in terms of your cost of goods. And if your average spend on cost of goods is 300k per year, that's 30, 15 to 30k in variance. So with our system, we bring down that variance to around 1 to 2%. Hmm. And so those are kind of the two main ways we can help you reduce costs. And then in, in addition to this, the fact that we integrate you with your suppliers actually creates a lot of benefits for the supplier as well in being able to provide a more reliable service to you. And so suppliers are actually highly invested in creating this integration. So they can also provide benefits in the form of actually reducing your actual inventory costs Mm. by creating this integration. Ah, Just because they're eager to be on the platform and be a provider and be part of the system. Yes. Okay. And so in terms of cost savings, like if if the average restaurant profit margin would be 5%, you're able to save five on cost of goods sold, restaurants might be able to double their profits. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And save a lot of time. Could you... um, Tell us a little bit about where and how you and your co-founder conceived the idea. You know, as it always is with a startup, you start somewhere and then, you know, you end up in a very different place as you start to learn more and more about your customers and, and you know, just getting deeper and deeper into the weeds of things. And so we actually started working on Peckish or, or sort of the idea was conceived of Peckish as a, as a business when we were at Uber, so my co-founder founder and I were both from, we were both previously working together at Uber, and we were working on a project where we were bringing a lot of data from across the business, fragmented data. As you can imagine, Uber being a global company, there's things going on all over the place, and we were actually working on bringing together all of this data and creating an automated recommendation system to help operations managers make faster decisions on structural pricing, right? So we would take all of this data and then recommend this is what you should do. Basically, these are the levers you should be pulling. And the other thing is that both my co-founder and I, we actually have a restaurant background. So mm-hmm. I have a, my family owns a, a restaurant chain called Sardarji based in Penang in Malaysia. And, and my co-founder, he pretty much lived in restaurants his whole life as his father was a restaurant, is a restaurant owner still. Um, and so we were discussing, we were thinking what we're building at Uber actually could be very applicable to the to the restaurant space, mm-hmm. especially in, in the world where it's digitizing 
quite rapidly right now. So that's where we started. We were like, let's just help them make sense of the data that they have access to and create some more sort of streamline the decision-making around that. Then we quickly realized that the most broken part of this entire thing was the back of house, the inventory management area. And that's where most, it was still like analog, where there was little, very little tech you know, use and it was still kind of, and that's where the most inefficiencies were. And then we came to realize that as we started to dig into this further, there's actually a lot of food waste and a lot of money left on the table that actually even just goes unseen by the restaurant owner because they're not looking into this. And we found that like one third of all of the food that is actually produced from the farm to the plate is wasted. And three quarters of that waste happens before it reaches a plate. So you can imagine how much inefficiency there are in that entire supply chain. So that's where we started to dive further into the inventory and, and the back of house management side of things. Got it. Got it. And how long did this journey take? Like from the very first aha moment where you thought, hey, there might be something here to the fully baked idea of what Beckish is now? Yeah. So um, we've been from the first kind of, hey, let's start working on Peckish. That was in January this year. Hmm. So still relatively early days. And then in May, like the next milestone, I guess, was we got received funding from Antler, 100K pre-seed check. And that's when we were like, okay, time to really dig in here. And I think there's a huge opportunity here too that we can capture. So we, we figured, hey, this is something that we should both spend our time on like full-time. So that's when we started working, when Peckish was officially born, I would say. And yeah, since then, we've been working very closely with early pilot customers in the, in the Amsterdam market, our own restaurant, you know, with our families, and also sort of talking to other restaurants in, in other parts of the world, including mm-hmm. London and stuff. So getting very deep into the restaurant world. And that's where we started to uncover that you know, it's not just about the restaurant. Even if we can automate everything on the restaurant side, there's still all of this stuff that's out of their hands in the supply chain. And so the problem's also further up in the supply chain itself. Hmm. And so I would say, yeah, it's been about six months since we've gotten from initial to where we are today. And was it a tough decision for you to quit your job? You mentioned both you and your co-founder worked at, at Uber. Sounds like an exciting role also in the restaurant space. And then there was this idea, like, was that a a hard one to make or was that very natural? It was a hard decision. I think the hardest part of it was, it wasn't so much that it was, I wasn't doubting whether or not this was something I wanted to do because I've always wanted to actually start my own company in the tech space. And so this was an opportunity I definitely couldn't pass up that it came by and I was like, yeah, like once in a lifetime, let's go. But it was very hard to leave Uber. <laughs> Uber is a hard company to leave. I think you could probably attest to that mm-hmm. as well. But just, you know, the people there that you're working with and just having been there for such a long part of my career, it was definitely kind of like a edge of the cliff moment where you're sort of pulling a trigger and saying, okay, time to take the leap. So, yeah. Got it. And um, so you, it's still very early days, Package. You, you painted the vision for us. I imagine that your day-to-day present still looks very different from that. So could you take us along and, and, and tell a bit more about like very practically what you're doing now to build towards that vision? Yeah, definitely. I mean, exactly. And I think, you know, just to, to mention like me being on this podcast, it's very much a, a work in progress story. It's mm-hmm. not a success story. We're still kind of figuring things out every single day. And as you mentioned, it's the early part of the journey. And so what the day-to-day looks like today is is very much constantly questioning ourselves on, is this the MVP? Like, what is the smallest thing that we can build that can provide value to the customers that we want to serve, right? So the first thing that we've been questioning is always like narrowing down the product that we're actually building. We actually built a demo product in when even when we're going through Antler and shortly after that, we built a huge product. And I would say 80% of that is not being used. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and, and we, I think we could still narrow it down even further. And so that's kind of one thing which is like 
always just questioning ourselves. Are we building for the, the right, like, are we actually, is that whatever we're building actually going to be used by the customer and is it going to solve their problem? And then the second part to that is like narrowing down the customer themselves, because I think in Peckish's end state, I think we could provide a product that is superior to a lot of the products in the market that, you know, are currently serving our customer profile at this point in time. However, today, Peckish is, is not where it is in its end state. But today, we can very quickly add value to a subset of that customer profile. And so it's continuing to find that very like specific profile of person who we should be targeting first. And we've iterated on this constantly over the, the weeks, pretty much week to week and month to month, we've been iterating on this. It's not clear to you in the outset, but then when you look back, it gets a bit clearer, but it's kind of just mm-hmm. almost like shooting darts and seeing what sticks. And then you say, okay, let's follow that that mm-hmm. lead. Uh, so it's, it sounds all nice and organized, but it's really chaotic. And how do you sort of organize a feedback loop with your customers? Because I can imagine it's hard to get them on the phone every week when you put out a new version of your product. So how do you very practically get their feedback in a, in a, in a, in a structured way? The best way for me is to either just call them directly or go to the restaurants and show it to them and get them to give me live feedback. Um, that's the best way. And even for people who aren't my customers yet, it's just you know, even just going to their restaurants, talking to them, mm. getting a sense of what their problems are and trying to validate a lot of the hypotheses we have. And then, you know, seeing if we can demo them what we're building. So that's kind of the main way is to create, it's a very manual feedback mm. loop mm. right now is what I'm trying to get to. Got it, got it. <laughs> and um, so how do you find these potential customers? You mentioned two family businesses in restaurant. That's uh, intensely helpful, I can imagine. How do you pitch co-developing and and providing feedback to the other restaurants you work with? Yeah, so exactly. Like the first customer for us is our own family, like direct feedback. Like whenever we build something, we can just obviously validate it within our own restaurants to start off with. But then the going out beyond that is a lot more of a volume game, number Mm. one. And two, it's um, network. So Mm. leveraging influential people within the space, people who, you know, you can get intro to, you know, if you want to meet someone. So LinkedIn, very practically speaking, has been a huge tool for us. Mm -hmm. Like just going through the LinkedIn network, seeing who are the people we would like to target and then seeing if we have any mutual connections that can actually intro us to those people to create a somewhat warm interaction when I when I do meet them. And then once you do sort of have that conversation, it's very much like listening to them versus selling them what we're trying to do. Like, at least that's what I found has mm-hmm. worked, where it's more like, this is the problem that we see a lot of restaurants facing. Does that actually resonate with you? And can you tell me more about your experience? And, and you get a sort of a conversation going And then sort of after that coming in with like, hey, by the way, I have this solution. We're obviously early stage. This is the vision that we are trying to build towards. Would you be open to working with like this scrappy startup and, you know, seeing where it could go? And if they do see enough value in that vision and in the team, they are willing to actually come along the journey with you. It's But there's a very small percentage of people who actually will want to do that. Mm. (laughs) <laughs> so that's why I say it's a volumes game as well. Yeah. Got it. L- l- lots of talking uh, until you have your your customers that you can Yeah, because like 90% of the time it's a rejection where it's <clears> like, this sounds great. Come back to me when you've built it. <laughs> and, Thanks. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Got it. And, and what have you learned about this business and about your idea along the way? Like how have you made change? And what have you learned about the sector that you're active in? It's very complex. Mm. Um, the restaurant operation is extremely complicated, right? In, in terms of your all of the different systems and software and all of that stuff, it's very fragmented right now. And so for anyone to get into this space as a new entrant into this market, 
it's very much dependent on being a part of that ecosystem, right? So if you're a restaurant owner, you would actually trust a company that's recommended to you, not only by your friends, but also by the other software companies that you're working with. Mm. So for me, like partnerships and working with other software companies that are targeting the same users as we are is, is crucial actually to successfully entering the space. And one thing that I, I used to think was kind of, oh, partnerships only make sense when you've already got like revenue and you're already like, you've, you've scaled and it, it becomes kind of a, a thing. But I think it's actually sooner than you think when mm. partnerships can start to add value for both sides. Mm. Um, yeah. And, and any other things or is that the, the big number one and then nothing for a long time? It's all, it's, it's a huge relationships game. Like you can't go in there like without having built a rapport with a restaurant owner. Like, you know, when you're talking about hospitality, it's a, it's a people, mm. you know, industry. And it's very much about being in, being present. And that's what I've learned is that restaurant owners and, and people in the space are very happy to chat with, with you. Even if you're a salesperson coming in and having a chat, they're happy to chat as long as you don't come in the in the middle of their peak service. But you come in, have a chat, and create a relationship, and that's that gets you very far. It's not less of a sort of transactional game. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And where would Package actually plug in? Because you mentioned, indeed, there's a lot of tools, a lot of software already. I know the POS, so the, the point of sale where the orders come in is a, is a very central piece of equipment in a restaurant. Uh, there's other pieces, management of, uh, of inventory, sometimes in Excel. There's probably a management tool for employees. There might yeah. be uh, delivery services plugging in. Like, wh- How would package fit into that existing system? The first piece is that we've designed package in a way that although it like by integrating with all of the other existing pieces of software, it like enhances the value quite exponentially. Without those integrations, we can already create some value from day zero. So even if you we don't integrate with all of the softwares in your environment, we can at the very least automate your inventory like stock take and digitizing that information and figuring out what you actually need to order. And then we can continue to automate that further by integrating with your suppliers, integrating with your POS system so that we can forecast what your demand is going to be based on the sales that you're selling and the dishes that you're selling. So the POS is, is one big integration and, and big partner that we see to that we work with. And then obviously any other sort of added information, like delivery posts, if you're looking at Uber Eats or Deliveroo, like getting that information in. So some there's already aggregators like Deliverect that do this. So working with them to help get that context is also powerful to then create the accurate forecasts. So you have that. And then you have also like front of house, format table, and, and these types of tools that manage bookings. So being able to integrate with that can help add additional context when we're thinking about forecasting and that sort of stuff as okay. well. So, and obviously one thing to add, there's the accounting systems as well, right? So that's another key element of a restaurant operation is like if you are using some sort of accounting software, then if we can seamlessly take what you've been spending, what you've received, your invoices, and send that to this, that system, that also streamlines that process as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah especially if you want to all like automate inventory buying as well, you probably need an integration with, with the accounting software. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. And Arpit, you mentioned being part of Antler, big uh, globally active accelerator. They invested in you. How did they help you? How did you benefit from being part of Antler? Were there specific mentors, specific uh, sessions, specific other things they organized that, that helped you develop package? I mean, the way it was structured was that we entered into like a nine-week cohort. So mm-hmm. we, inter- we we got into the program and the, the way that it it's set up is it's a nine week program where the first two weeks are very much networking with the rest of the Mm. participants. And the idea there is actually to see who you could potentially team up with as a co-founder of the business. In our case, we already came in as a team because Sebastian and I were both from Uber and we, we joined in as a team. But that being said, we were 
open to meeting other folks who could pretend, potentially add even more value to our team. We ended up figuring out along the way that we thought we had what we, we needed already to move. So we didn't add anyone to the team, but we still found value in just meeting a whole bunch of other entrepreneurs mm-hmm. kind of at a similar stage and, you know, just ideating on, on a bunch of stuff. So, so that's the first two weeks. And then, and then the remaining sort of weeks, are you know, you've, once you've formed a team, you start to work on the idea. It's almost like an incubator where you're just actually going out into the market, validating the idea, building the MVP, getting feedback from your customers and showing like as much traction as you can and progress over that period. And we're supported by the partners of the of the fund. So like Yauri and, and RJ were, were were involved and you know a bunch of, of the, the organizing team organized a lot of people to come and help mentor us and give talks and and sessions on, on different aspects of a startup. And then yeah, the end is like the IC where you pitch to the to the investment committee and then they decide whether or not they wanna actually fund fund mm-hmm. the idea, fund the team. And were there like from all the all the sessions and all the all the advice? Were there particular things you took away from that, like that parts you you made part of uh, your approach to to package? For me, the value that I think Antler was able to bring was that I felt like having come from Uber and having also started my own business, although not in the tech space, and having Sebastian, who is very much in the software and is a builder and able to build the, the, the thing that we need. I felt like operationally we were we were good. But what the value that Antler brought was bringing us into this VC world because I was, I'm was i a first-time ta- first founder, haven't raised from venture capital before. So just kind of getting exposure to the way this works, meeting investors in the space, that was where I found a lot of the value from, from them coming in. Yeah, that makes sense. And then... Um... One year in, what were the things you really enjoyed compared to your your previous job at Uber? And what were the things you struggled with? I'll start with what I enjoyed. So I guess what I've really enjoyed is that just the autonomy in like what we're doing. It's very much, everything is up to us to build this thing. And we're not a small cog in a big machine it's like we are the the machine so <laughs> we need to like make it work that is obviously stressful as well at time it's very stressful but it's also quite rewarding when you do stuff and then you see it providing even like a small slither of value to someone so i've enjoyed that and just being kind of in this hustle and building something from zero which is something that I enjoyed in the beginning times where I, when I was at Uber, which but wasn't so much the case post IPO and moving towards like a, a big sort of corporate machine that it is. So that's kind of what I enjoyed. What uh, sort of on the other side, I think the uncertainty of it all is is also is I, I don't think I've ever felt stressed in my life until I started this company. <laughs> you, you, you've always come across as a pretty chill dude. You, you still do, yeah. by the way, but but uh, elaborate a little bit. What, what stresses you out? We have a limited runway, right? So you need to be moving and building momentum over time and get you to enough of a point where you can then sort of raise the next round or create enough revenue to sustain you for, for longer. So, so one piece is always being like, okay, is this enough progress is this enough traction like in the market that we're in right now in the space that we're in the restaurant space itself almost all the odds are stacked against us in terms of being able to raise that next round not to say that we believe that this is the best time to actually invest in the restaurant tech space but obviously we're biased because we're we're seeing the space firsthand Mm -hmm. But that's kind of one one element, which is just managing that runway. When you have a job, you've got a salary coming in, regardless of whether you do a great job or a normal job or a bad job. That money's coming in. You can survive. In this case, it's up to you. You know, your future is kind of up to you and and that sort of thing. So, yeah. And what would you recommend yourself? Are there any lessons that you take away that you would, uh, you would benefit from imagining yourself one year ago before starting this? I, to be honest, I don't really, uh, not to say I did everything 
perfectly, but I wouldn't do anything differently mm -hmm. than what I've done right now. And I think the main takeaway was that I was, I wanted to start this thing and I started working on it and I just kind of took the opportunities that came my way. Obviously not everything went according to plan, but I think one thing I would tell myself is that everyone says that starting a company is like super stressful. And I was always like, yeah, I know it's stressful, whatever. Like, well, how much stress could it be? But now I really, it's not really a cliche. It really is more stressful than you think it will be. Like 10 times more stressful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, <laughs> But maybe the only way to really, really feel that is to do it. Yeah, I think, yeah. and that really also motivates you as well in a way. Yeah. That that stress and that kind of uncertainty is a yeah. good motivator. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. And what skills did you pick up along the way? I can you imagine that, for example, convincing a lot of restaurants to work with you is something you never did before in the same way. Oh, yeah. Maybe the product development is also might might be new. Like, are there um, areas of skills that you hadn't ever thought of, worked on that you've developed in the last year? Sales. <laughs> Sales. Okay. I never, like, I, I come from a technical background mm -hmm. myself, studied engineering, got into Uber operations, was also very, more or less, quite a technical role. I never saw myself as being a salesperson. Like, my, my wife is, she's a salesperson. She does sales. She's a very different profile to me. And what I've, I've really come to appreciate the sales function and how crucial it is to actually a business <laughs> like when you're in operations you're like oh yeah ops is all about we're the core of this business mm -hmm. but when you're starting a business like sales is the biggest always going to be such a huge part of mm -hmm. the business and as a founder you can't just hire someone to sell your your product for you because you don't even know what you're selling yet you need to learn what you're selling by talking to the customers. And mm -hmm. so that's why I've really appreciated the sales function and built that skill. Makes well, sense, yeah. I'm working on building the skill, yeah. Got it, yeah. And without sales, uh, there's no point in doing the operations, right? So can you make, it's like a, a very much a real check, especially early stage, right? When there's not a company yeah. yet that you can you can tweak and, and optimize and, uh, and improve. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, Arpreet, we've talked a lot about package. I'd love to switch gears a little bit and talk a bit more about your journey. I think it's uh, super interesting. You've made a lot of moves and you, uh, you've come a long way in uh, miles slash kilometer terms <laughs> and, and I'm sure everything else as well. Could you tell a little bit about uh, where you started in Australia and what triggered your move to Amsterdam? Yeah, sure. I mean, so as you mentioned, a lot of miles traveled, uh, born and grew up in Sydney, southwest Sydney, so Liverpool near that area. And yeah, pretty much lived my whole life in Australia and never lived anywhere else until I moved to Amsterdam in 2018. So I've been here over this side for more than five years. What triggered the move? Shortly after I finished my degree, I came across the role at Uber. I actually joined Uber as a grad. Uh, I was like one of the first grad programs that they did for the company. And so I figured, hey, you know, having been always kind of inclined towards the entrepreneurial life and, you know, the startup world, I figured I wouldn't get a chance to join Uber ever again. And why don't I just give it a shot? And it was great. I loved it. I loved the, the first couple of years in the team over there, did a lot of everything pretty much. And then I started to specialize in the marketplace area of the business And that's what actually brought me over to Amsterdam. So I moved to Amsterdam within, within Uber. So it was like an internal transfer. One of the main motivators was my wife and I wanted to live in Europe. Well, we basically wanted to live on the other side of the world, which was a bit closer to everything else for a while, so that we could travel and a bit of a change of scenery. So this role I came across at Uber, applied, got the job, and moved over here. So it was to to join the marketplace team over here and the central side of the business to sort of centralize and scale the marketplace function. And, and how has the move been like for you? Was it like a huge change in terms of culture or, or, or anything else that you noticed or did it go very smoothly? How did you experience that move? It was a huge culture shock actually. Like <laughs> Australia is a, like a Western country. 
English speaking, and I had been to London before, so I kind of figured, okay, Amsterdam, like London is close to Amsterdam, must be more or less similar. I had never been to Amsterdam before we moved. So we literally found out we got the job and then four weeks later we moved to Amsterdam. And then when we got there, the first thing I just noticed was just like all the bikes everywhere and just people like riding. Like literally I'd never seen so many bikes in my life and just people just riding. And I was like, wow, okay, this is this is Europe. Okay, like there's a clear you know, difference in the the way it looks, but also mm. just the culture in general is different to, I would say, London. I would say London is very similar to Sydney in sort of the cultural sense, but Amsterdam was different. The language is obviously different. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that took some adjusting to get, but the great part is that everyone here speaks such great English. So I tried to learn Dutch, but I struggled and everyone would switch to English when, when they hear me speak yeah. Dutch. <laughs> so <laughs> you guys, don't, are, you guys are great. Yeah. So I think the other piece that I love about Amsterdam, which is a difference in culture, is just how much of a kind of melting pot it is of different people from different parts of the world. Like Australia prides itself on being a multicultural country, but when I came to Amsterdam, I was like, okay, this is really like, it's like Australia times mm. 20. Like being, and maybe the fact that I was in Uber also kind of made this a bit more evident. But, you know, in, in my team at Uber, there was like 70 people. And I think there was about 50 different countries in that team. And so just like being exposed to even countries I'd never even heard about before, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm ashamed to say, mm-hmm. but yeah, just, and I think that's great. And everyone's kind of open to hang out. It's very welcoming sort of environment, I would say. Very yeah. cool. And you mentioned uh, you always wanted to start a business. Why is that? It's just, for me, it's fun. Like it's something that, I think just growing up, I'd always been exposed to that. Also just seeing other people that I looked up to who had done similar, like who had started their mm-hmm. own businesses. So I mm-hmm. think that's probably one one of the big influences. But yeah, just, I, I find it fascinating just being able to get out of kind of the corporate or sort of the the everyday rat race of, you know, working nine to five and doing, but you can kind of do whatever you think if you find something interesting and it can provide value to someone else as well, why not pursue mm-hmm. that? So, yeah, I think that's why. And I dabbled in it a bit through high school and then mm-hmm. in, in uni. And, yeah, I think I just enjoy that. And, and who were the people you looked up to that you mentioned and, and what were sort of the, the things that really attracted you in, in the way they did it? Just looking at my my uncles, my family who had been very also very entrepreneurial they had started their own businesses from nothing and then were able to turn it into something that could actually sustain them and so that being surrounded by immediate family and people who were doing things that were outside of the norm of just like your everyday sort of occupations so mm-hmm. i think those were the, the bigger influences yeah and what do you do you reckon there were certain values that you took away from that? Like, it's very hard to imagine that you didn't, but what are the ones that come to mind for you? Just do it. <laughs> like, go and get it. Like, I think that's, it's not that difficult to take the next step and make it happen. Mm-hmm. And I think when I was growing up, my parents, we had this, uh, we were part of this organization called Seek Youth Australia, which basically at that time brought all of this kind of Sikh community together and helped the kids develop different skills. And one of those things we were a part of was like a startup boot camp. And so in that boot camp, it was my, I think one of my first exposures to the startup world. And yeah, you, we literally came up with a business idea and a business model and could almost go to market in a weekend, mm-hmm. right? And it just sh- showed you that it's not like something that's out of reach. So just saying what you like, doing what you say you want to do. I think that's a big piece of big takeaway that I that I value. Got it. And how old were you at the time? 
So I was uh, probably in high school at the time. Yeah, so it would have been year 10 or 11. So. Started early. And, yeah. and I'm glad you, you brought up the, the Sick Youth Organization. Because as, as I mentioned, you're wearing a turban, you're, you are a sick. I was wondering, could you tell the audience a bit more about how that changes your, your daily life? And then I'm thinking both like very practically, but also spiritually, maybe, if, if that makes sense to express in terms of daily life. Yeah, ex exactly. So I'm, I'm a Sikh. I wear a turban. Not all Sikhs wear turbans, so that's one thing to mention. But most people you see wearing a turban in the Western world are highly likely to be Sikh. So we have a very physical identity that is more or less, that is recognizable or distinguishable. And that's always been part of my everyday. Like I generally, if I'm in a crowd, you'll see me. I stand out, especially if I'm wearing a bright pink turban. So... That's actually by design in terms of Sikhism, like, or in terms of the identity mm. of a Sikh, the turban is supposed to represent the values that we stand by, which is earning an honest living, standing up for people who can't stand up for themselves. And yeah, I guess just being almost like a, someone that you can go to for help mm. if you need. That's why we have a distinguishable identity. So that's something that's always been a part of me. I think it's a double-edged sword in the sense that if you do something good, you get noticed. But if you do something bad, you also get noticed. So that's something that I keep in mind every day when I'm doing my day-to-day. My -day. Does it come with a sense of responsibility as well? It feels like a moral that also require being very active about it, right? And, and looking out yeah. for, uh, for opportunities to help, maybe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think... It comes in the responsibility in the sense that you're not just representing yourself, you're re representing an entire diaspora, you're representing an entire community. So it's almost like being a public figure every day. And so that's definitely something when I'm wearing my turban, you want to make it, it's almost like a moral compass as well, mm -hmm. where you're thinking about what you're doing, making sure that would your community be, pr be proud of you for doing this. And with the turban, it also becomes very conspicuous right like it's a, a very bright reminder each and every day to keep the compass in mind yeah exactly and for me i grew up with it like my mm -hmm. parents kept my hair from birth so it's always been a part of my mm -hmm. identity in a sense um so i almost by removing the turban or like cutting my hair it almost feels like i'd be removing a limb mm -hmm. because it's 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 been that part of my my mm -hmm. sort of my identity for that long so yeah and, and are there very practical parts to it as well? Certain routines, things you do, do things you don't do, or not so much? Yeah, I mean, so there's three pillars to Sikhism. I kind of alluded to them earlier on. Number one is earning an honest living. So basically earning your living in the right way. The second thing is kind of sharing with others. So sharing the reaps or the, the rewards of your labor with the needy or people who are less well off than you are. And the third element of Sikhism is remembering the oneness or basically that everybody in the entire or everything in the universe is actually one and the, and the same energy or the same consciousness. So this universal oneness concept and you should remember that in everything that you do. So when you're thinking about people you don't like or people that you like, everything that's happening in the world, it's all actually part of the, the mm -hmm. oneness that mm -hmm. it is. Yeah. It sounds like very um, humanist in a way, like if they're one and related to each other, it's hard to have an enemy, so to say. Does that make sense? Do you feel that way based on that tenet? Yeah, I mean, I would still say I have my flaws and I get upset at people and there's things that I don't like, but it's a, it's always a reminder to say, hey, hang on, everything is connected. If you think about the climate crisis, you think about everything, even though we do something on this side of the world, it affects something on the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, it's not just the world itself, it's the entire universe. Like it all came from the initial stardust that it was, you know, millions of years ago, billions of years ago. So everything is connected. So remembering that, Removing this kind of us and them sort of mentality, I think, is very beneficial in, in today's society. Absolutely. We uh, could do a bit more of that. 
And uh, back to the your entrepreneurial journey, you mentioned you, you were keen to start a business yourself for a long time. What would you recommend uh, people in, say, their early 20s that want to start a business? Find a good team. Find someone who shares your vision, has complementary skills to you that can really be a sparring partner, but but basically can help you make your progress twice as fast as you can. I think Peckish wouldn't be existing today if I didn't have Sebastian working with me as part of the team. And you can't do it alone, or at least it's very difficult to do it alone. I won't say you can't, but it's a lot more difficult. And so lots less fun, great, I imagine, too. Yeah, for sure. So having a great team is always good. The second part is then just do it, like just start somewhere, I would say. Just doesn't matter if you have school or uni or whatever, like you can always find some time to work on, on your side hustle and then turn that side hustle into the main hustle at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and in your mind, are there any misconceptions about entrepreneurs? I think everybody thinks entrepreneurs are a certain type of person. Like mm. there's one pro, like oh, Elon Musk or your Mark Zuckerbergs and all these billionaires come to mind when you think about entrepreneurs. But, but actually there's so many different types of entrepreneurs. There's so many different types of businesses. Like a tech, like Silicon Valley style startup is just one type of business. And that might not be the type of business that you want to do, but you can still be an entrepreneur. You could do a lifestyle business. You could have a small business, e-commerce business that brings you passive income, whatever. But all of these are different classes of entrepreneurs, I would say. Yeah. And and um, are there any categories of people that have that have certain personality traits that you would not recommend going this route? That's a good one. You need to be empathetic with your customers that you're serving. I think empathy is a huge part of entrepreneurship, if not to just solve your own problem, but you're also like, you have to actually care about your customers. I actually, I believe that like, it's not just about trying to make as much money from people as you can. If you want to make money, I wouldn't say starting a like Silicon Valley tech company is the best way to make money if that's all you wanted to do. Of course, there's a huge upside if it all goes well, but it really needs to start with like problem. Like, do you actually care about the problem that you're solving? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And some uh, being able to cope with some stress is probably an important uh, requirement as well. Like thinking about what you're saying oh, yeah. earlier. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, okay. But that being said, I think people are adaptable. Like Mm -hmm. if you told me that I'd be going through this level of stress, Mm -hmm. if I could see this a year before starting, Mm -hmm. I would be like, wow, that that is insane. I'm not going to do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But once you're in it, you kind of adapt. I think that's the cool thing about people is like you just adapt to different situations. So How do you do that? I don't know. I I think you just really take it, you know, in small chunks, like one thing at a time. Mm And just remind yourself of why you're doing this in the mm. first place. I think that helps a lot. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a certain uh, routine, a certain way of doing that for yourself? One is obviously talking to my wife. <laughs> I think she's a good uh, support system. Having a support system is is crucial, I would say. And she generally always provides me with confidence saying, look, I know you can do this. You know, you can do this, like just get it done. You know, like it's not just to kind of calm you down when, whenever it feels like things are getting too much, it's always good to have an outlet. So, yeah. We started off talking about your journey. Like if everything goes as you'd want it, what will be the next steps? Would you want to take package to other locations? Would you want to operate it from Amsterdam? How do you think about sort of the, the geography of the business? Also taking into account where you might want to, to move yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think I see Peckish as a global business and our network is also global. Like having come from Australia, we have business in, in Malaysia. Similarly, my co-founder has his family business in Colombia as well as France. So we have a, a lot of global ambitions to just bring it to those places first and foremost. But uh, just in terms of like strategically speaking as well, the next big market for us is London. 
So we're actually already speaking with restaurants like owners in the space, getting uh, acquainted with the community over there and hoping to launch in London early next year mm-hmm. as well. Because mm-hmm. um, for that, for us, that's that's also a massive market, you know, as a next step. Yeah, of course. Um, and, and relatively close and probably 10, 15 times the size of Amsterdam. So I can yeah. imagine that's a, a, a big one, big next milestone for you guys. Um, yes. And, and Harpreet, is there anything currently that you need? Are you looking for more restaurant partners or, or other things that, that you're looking for as package? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, we'd love to speak to as many restaurant partners over the next two to three months. Uh, we're currently running a pilot of the product with a, with a handful of, of clients in the space. We're working with both restaurants and suppliers. So if you're a food wholesaler or distributor, or if you're a brand like a food product that you're selling to restaurants, all of these people are folks that we're working with right now. We'll basically be giving them access to the product, getting everything set up for them to use it and and just getting feedback before we do the full commercial launch (laughs) next year in Q1. And yeah, I think we'll be looking to raise our seed or early yeah, seed funding in uh, towards the end of Q1 next year. So we'll be starting to raise at that point. So between now and then, always open to chatting with folks who are in the in the VC or investment space. But yeah. Cool. Yeah. So reach out if anyone's listening is either an interested investor or an interested restaurant owner or restaurant manager to Harpreet. I think what you guys are doing is super interesting. It makes a lot of sense. So I would if I were. And Harpreet, we're almost wrapping up, but is there anything you'd like to share with the audience before we do? I just wanted to say, first of all, thank you for having me on the on the podcast. Yeah, really enjoyed the chat. I'm always open to chatting with folks that are interested in, in this space. Like you can hit me up on LinkedIn, DM me. Uh, I'd love to have a coffee and have a chat. I think just being part of the network, expanding the network is super, uh, the things that I enjoy by being in the space now as well. So, yeah. Great. That's a really good note to end on. Thank you so much, Apreet, for being open about everything, uh, everything business, everything personal. Really enjoyed our conversation and best of luck. Thanks a lot, Hugo. Take care. Bye-bye.